Hello. Hi, world. Welcome to Centered Subject. Here we are. Here we are. Yeah, here we are. And who are we? I'm Jenny. I'm Yelena. I'm in Los Angeles. I live in New York, in Brooklyn, where all the people live. Oh, yeah. In New York, where the Met Gala just happened. That's right. Where there were many feathered creatures. Yeah. Yeah. There were a lot of people wearing feathers, and I don't really think that's very campy. It's not like that doesn't go far enough to just put some feathers on some stuff, you know, like, yeah, you look really glamorous, mm. but you know, it's like, yeah, even know. when the feathers are artificially colored, it still doesn't seem to reach the necessary height, no. but because it's a kind of campy event to begin with. Yeah. And it's infinitely self-reflective and met him that way. Maybe yeah. it could reach a camp. I know. I think maybe Kim Kardashian, like, Thinking about camp or discussing it with Kanye even badly is campy. Maybe. Maybe. I just, I'm not sure. Maybe. But I just really <laughs> wish that it was literal camp. You know, people going to camp, I think would be yeah. really charming if everyone just dressed in shorts and matching I hats. You know, there would be troops. I'm, did anyone interpret it that way? I hope they did. I did. I saw a couple people doing that. Like, yeah, oh, good. Okay. Yeah. yeah, that's that's more camp. I think that's more camp than than a feather. I saw some people wearing tents. That was cool. They were like, "Oh, I thought it was oh, this yeah. kind of camp." Oh, you like to camp in a kind of jokey, ironic way. Actually, it's true. I did. You I like did to do f- just that recently. You like to flip with camping, really. You like to play with your yeah. audience in terms in terms of camp. Yeah. yeah, I always try to channel Susan Suntag as much as I can in any given situation. <laughs> Me too. But just in the length of my blazers that I wear, really. Oh. And, uh, my hair. I feel like she likes blazers. Am I wrong? Like, she does like blazers. I don't think she likes feathers, but maybe, no. you know, the feathers, if they were to function in a, you know, self-reflective, self-refracting mirror ways, <laughs> if they placed a feather in between two mirrors and a candle... <laughs> And then all the attendants wearing feathers. Actually, maybe just not even a feather, but all the attendants, if they all gathered between two mirrors and also had a candle, then maybe Susan Sontag would appear, maybe, in a blazer, though. Yeah. Which mirror? From, from, I don't know. From From the left, obviously. Oh, that's good. Amazing. The left part of You mean there's two different afterlives? You know, I would think so. I would think so, surely. I don't know. I mean, there's some villainous leftists, but of course also some That's a good point. pretty wretched right-wing yeah. people. Would they be together in heaven or in hell? I'm not sure. There should be a clear division. Yes. I don't think that if you're going to have an afterlife that you're allowed to have differentiations of political view in the afterlife because, I don't know, it's like people always kind of act like the soul itself is nonpartisan. You know, even though like we fight for our souls and do in the political fights from like the spiritual religious sense, everyone always seems to want to come into oneness or wholeness when they talk about, you know, the afterlife. It's like imagining like a Republican heaven and then like leftist heaven. (laughs) It doesn't really work. But maybe Mm. since they're all, they're all fallacies anyway, it doesn't make any difference. I'm sure they are. Well, what's happening with me here in Los Angeles is that I'm looking at the screen, you know, I pulled up the P-E-T-A website, PETA. Not sure how you pronounce it. PETA. Okay, PETA. Yeah. (laughs) Not to be mixed up with the Mediterranean flatbread. Is it similar? Well, yeah, it's exactly the same sounding word. Okay, great. Yeah. Then PETA it is. So I'm looking at PETA's website, their blog where they critique the feathers that were in great multitudes. 
present at the Met Gala. And I scrolled to this strange point and stopped the conversation on Naomi Campbell's leg. Mm. And to the right of it, there's this little box ad that says Royal Baby Inspired Gifts for the Littlest Vegans. And there's a little baby petting a dog. <laughs> so this just seems like a good segue. I mean, I'm going to click on it just to see what the hell is happening. Fuck. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it says just Peter Baby Clothes. But I guess they swiftly, you know, updated it to keep the baby, the royal baby in mind. So, oh. But it's just a bunch of clothes for babies with animals and my friends, veggie sorrows, superhero animals, give peas a chance, which is my favorite pun possibly. Yeah. That's peas good. being the green vegetables. Yeah. So that's just... Uh, Animals, you know. Yeah, punning vegetables is okay. So that's the topic of our show today, right? It's it. Indeed. <laughs> We've arrived <laughs> at the topic. That was a really good... In the roundabout, feathered way. <laughs> good feathery. It was like a very burlesque reveal with the feathers. And the title of the show is very small. Animal. Uh, okay. Left, left from the leg. Left leg appeared. <laughs> Right. I don't want her left leg, actually. Sorry, Naomi Campbell, but it was her left leg. It's okay. So animals, we've been thinking about animals. And I mean, I often think about animals, but personally, my interest was interest animals was piqued when I saw a recent story about the whale spy, because it also connected to the Russian, you know, post-Soviet spies operation. So tell me the story of the whale. Yeah. Please. Okay, so recently in April, there was a whale spotted off the coast of Norway, and the whale wore a harness, pretty fashionable, mm. but also it was his working outfit. <laughs> it had a label in it that said made in St. Petersburg, St. Petersburg. Cool. And it was somehow deduced, I think due to the harness and maybe other behavior that it exhibited, that it was actually a spy and that the whale is thought to be a part of a Russian animal spy programs in which they employ animals and I assume they pay them with like fish and lodgings. To do what? To spy, but I don't know how. So, well, I guess they didn't mention like what kind of data did they collect and how, because they had a harness, but they didn't mention anything about, you know, recording devices. So it was really curious. Ah. How would it spy exactly? Like, how would it relay information? I mean, I was really stuck on the fact that it was a whale working for the, a spy agency. Yeah. And I was like, the whale is a laborer. And, you know, did he elect to work for this agency? Oh, I'm yeah. sure, you know, they clearly just harnessed him and, you know, made him work. He was probably into it. Or maybe it was a she, but he was maybe was into it. I mean, apparently the reports now are saying that he's reluctant to leave the kind of populated areas and he keeps sort of smilingly returning to the shore, mm -hmm. um, exhibiting tricks. And people think that it's, you know, on one's food, he or she. Yeah. They, they, the whale. They. <clears throat> They come back to the shore. But yeah, the question remains, what sort of data and how would it go about spying? Or would it be, I suppose it could be weaponized. They could be weaponized at some point. Yeah. Well, they are. If they're a spy, they're already a weapon of potential war. Yeah, they are. A pleasing weapon, pleasing uh, cellopod or whatever. It's true. A cold, wet, cute weapon. Yeah. Smiling weapon. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good starting place. Yeah. I just highlighted the disturbing position of animals in our life. Well, firstly, it's just the kind of news heroes, you know, they kind of just appear on the internet mm -hmm. in various 
forms. Right. I don't have any in my apartment except for like an occasional little roach. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it? Yeah. It's sort of an animal. Yesterday, I saw, well, we're going to talk about insects now, but mm. I saw a couple ants exit the light socket through the part where the power comes out. Wow. <laughs> like that was their pathway. And I was like, that is a very goth thing that just happened. And I hope it continues to happen over time. It was a bit disturbing. They're living in the wires. Yeah. So what I've learned and what I've been thinking about in this research and thinking about animals this week is like that moment when an animal becomes of service to us because it's cute or it is of service to us in the other ways. Like I have other examples of worker animals, but like take the whale, for example. Mm. The second that it's of use to the human species, that's when it becomes to me sort of dubious. Mm. And I think that's true because that's how people sometimes treat children or that's how they treat like human actors who don't have full subjectivity. So whenever I call something cute, which usually means like I enjoy it or it's making happy or it's usually small. Mm. But is it a superior position? You kind of a condescend. I mean, that's interesting. So I think something has happened like on the internet with cat and dog videos where they're really cute. They fill us with joy. I mean, they are really cute, gleeful animals usually, particularly on the internet. And yeah, we're also kind of being weirdly, I don't know, I don't want to say paternalistic, but what is it like condescending towards them and their, you know, systems or whatever they're wanting to do with their behavior. And like in a way that whale doing its work, whatever it is, is just doing what it does. And it is cute to us though. And I like, I've been thinking about, is that cuteness wrong? Is my enjoyment of that condescending? Yeah. I think there's this element of entertainment and then there's an element of pleasure that people derive from anthropomorphizing animals, you know, so... I don't know. I'm always the worst person to ask if something is wrong. It's really... Yeah. Well, it's very interesting because it's literally what you just said. So here it is. What's so wrong with anthropomorphism? We need another and a wiser and perhaps a more mystical concept of animals remote from universal nature and living by complicated artifice. Man in civilization surveys the creature through the glass of his knowledge, the internet, and sees thereby a feather, whoa, <laughs> a feather magnified. We just talked about that, that's weird. Amazing quote. <laughs> and the whole image in distortion. Mm. We patronize them for their incompleteness. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. For their tragic fate of having taken form so far below ourselves. And therein we err. We greatly err. This was not written contemporarily. Big problem. Yes, I have. I was about, okay. Yes, For yes, the I'm animals sure. shall not be measured by man. In a world order more complete than ours, they move finished and complete. Gifted with extensions of the senses we have lost or never attained. Living by voices we shall never hear. I like Absolutely. Yeah. They are not brethren. That sounds like you. Lenny, they are not brethren. They are not under- underlings. <laughs> they are other nations Ooh. Yeah. caught with ourselves in the net of life and time. That's pretty good. Exactly. Yeah. So I think I agree. I think we have no right to treat them as lesser than. But I think within the sort of difference that we find ourselves in, I can also imagine 
perhaps wrongly because I don't really know what an animal position would be. But I can also imagine them sort of, you know, maybe smile at something a human does. Yeah. I think in that way, a benevolent in German of behavior, I think is fine. But I think, of course, when it's when it's in this kind of, or it's different when it's a circus kind of situation where an animal is deliberately brought into the human context and it's a human-centric gaze only. Even an amount of but I, bodies, you know, there's yeah. only one whale body versus many human right. bodies. I and mean, I think, stare and I think almost and, always, though, we experience animals with that gaze. And yes. I think that like our sense of humanness defined by our relationship to seeing animals and doing this process. Like that's how we know we're human. Yeah. It's sort of a identity crisis that we have maybe like going back to this like christian like you will own the earth and all the animals upon it you know like this idea that we were or agrarian life when you would have your yeah right but like a legit agrarian would probably really respect and they i know they do they really respect and like have this other type of attitude towards animals maybe it's like the idealization of the natural world that happened when people moved to cities you know mm -hmm. they like over idealize it and over conceptualize it and in that kind of patronize it as being like overly simple where like if you live with animals and you die if your animals die you know and you have to kill your animals in order to live you have this like you're like co-workers in a different way on like even footing with your animal. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like medieval people, you know, had like they worked up with their animals all the time. And if their cow died, they died. I mean, it was like that simple. Yeah. So yeah, it's like we're so separate. Yeah, that relationship is so separate. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, seriously, I think the only times that I encountered animals other than maybe dogs, cats and hamsters parrots would be you know it's in some sort of zoo sort of setting or yeah. something like that it's almost as though they live on the internet yeah and we just live inside uh, houses and apartments but so in it's different ecosystem it's almost like it's just a yeah even when you go you know a sort of contemporary camping is so sanctioned as well. Yeah. You know, usually you go somewhere it's a campsite, so you just see other humans. You really don't see very much. Right. That reminds me of the one time when I started to camp a little while ago. Well, like five, seven years ago. God damn. Seven years ago now. Yeah. So I was like car camping. And then I kept getting neurotic about the amount of people that were also at the campsite. And I didn't like car camping because there were too many people. And then I wanted to get farther and farther out into nature. And so the person I was with was like really into backpacking and a pretty good camper. So I was like, okay, we're going to go out into nature. But I don't know. I had like a terrifying fear of bears. Mm. So like I had this sense of animals as myself as prey. I was really attached to that. Have you ever seen a bear? No. Or have you just only read about it? No, but I've read about bear attacks and like great detail. And I like seriously enjoy reading about bear attacks and also fearing them. But like this one time that we went out actually camping in the wilderness and we had to camp, we, you know, we hiked for like two hours. It wasn't that big of a deal camp, but for me it was. And there was this in Texas, there aren't even any bears. Like I was just like very strangely obsessed with being prey, but I also was kind of excited by it and I kind of wanted it to happen. It was like the sublimity of the, like the scary animal was a thing that I was really obsessed with. So we went out there and we were in nature. And I was so excited to see like this expanse of nature and it was just him and me and there was no, you know, no other humans. And that felt really good and really pure or something. It did feel really good. And then we went to sleep 
And when we woke up the next morning, there were all these, there was like rustling and I got really scared. And I was like, sure that it was going to be my fate by this large, horrible, like saber tooth tiger or something in my imagination, you know? And we got out of the tent and it was like this little pink thing with a straight nose. I had no idea what it was. It looked like a little Ooh. Q-Bert or like E.T. or something. It was gross. And I was like, what? And then it, you know, put its head back down. And then another one popped up and there were all these like armadillos, but they were kind of young armadillos. And there were many of them just poking their heads up and putting their heads back down. And instead of having this experience of the sublime animal, you know, or like, oh, the elk from far away, we just like went into condescending them so bad because they were so silly mm. and ran over to them. And they weren't afraid of us because they were like in nature and they didn't know us as predators, I guess. Mm. And yeah, we were nice to them, but we were so disrespectful of their like natural splendor, you know, because I couldn't imagine an animal deep in nature as something like that. Mm. Like that was just foolish. Like, how dare you be such a foolish creature? I was ready for, you know, a horrible bear or some big, I don't know, grandiose animal, but it was just like 17 armadillos just hanging out in a field. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty cute. It was cute. Yeah, but I think that also encapsulates a sort of a relationship we have to yeah. animals. I think, you know, you just accept, expect this grand performance. Right. Um, or I need it. Yeah. Yeah. I think we should just go the object-oriented ontology way and reject the privileging of human existence over the existence I of do. I shall. Animals, non-human objects, AI, robots. I think we should just humbly take our humble order and sit there with champagne. A lot of the animals, well, I have a question about your champagne in a second, but a lot of the articles that I've been reading, we will question what the soul is and they'll quickly go, they'll like, yeah, they'll decenter the idea of having subjectivity from the human. And then they go, okay, well then that means that animals have subjectivity. And then they'll immediately go that, okay, robots have subjectivity. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't understand why we have to then donate sentience to a potential robot just because an armadillo has it. Like, I don't, I mean, you know how I feel about robots. It's just like, I don't think like armadillo and Roomba are the same thing. Yeah. I mean, sorry to bring it up, but not same thing. Right. Yeah. The sentience, right. What's going to be the, the circle of acceptance. Yeah. I, I suppose that then who's going to be the judge of how sentient or self-aware the yeah. robot is. Right. But I guess there is, there's no discussion. There's just all these moral circles are expanding and contracting yes. continuously. So Ooh. I suppose. Oh, here's my champagne question. I, yeah, I guess we will not know. <laughs> yeah, what is the champagne question? If you were <laughs> surrounded by animals or robots who wanted to have a party with you right now, who do you think you would share your champagne with and who would enjoy it the most? See, that's a terribly dumb question. <laughs> <laughs> Which, out of the animals, but they're so abstract. You don't give examples oh. of animals. I think it was for sure I would share it with a shapely poodle. Yeah, you would. That's you all over. If there was one. I feel like it would have to be like one of the chimpanzees that they taught to smoke and drink which reminds me of a documentary called project nim which is great and it's something that i also because of this i'm really this topic i had already watched it and i got really into this thing where humans as part of the 
condescending towards animals. Like they are like a sense of human lack. They'll domesticate an animal in a way that's more about the human than it's about the animal, but the animal kind of goes along with it because the people are the only, you know, team they have, you know? So, so this documentary is about like, wait, wait, what do you mean? Yeah. Like, you know, I mean, like I would a, think that they would only domesticate it on human terms. I mean, exactly. how would they, I would love to see something of domestication on the animal terms. Like, uh, what would that look like? I would like to see humans try to do that. That'd be some real yeah. hippie shit. I would like that. Like, for instance, like we always had parakeets when I was growing up and I didn't realize it. But like parakeets when in the wild live in like 300, 400 parakeets in a group. And they create just like, you know, birds in the sky, like starlings or whatever. They'll create giant flocks. Mm, yeah. And that's their consciousness. Right. Like, that's how they're comfortable. But like, I only grew up with a single parakeet that bonded so closely with like my mother or with my family. Oh. And it was, I think, trying to pull us into its instinctive behavior. But we were also pulling it into ours. Yeah. And I think we won because it was a solitary and it was tiny. And, and there were more. Yeah, it was more of you and you were larger. Yeah. Makes sense. But I would have liked it if the parakeet won. Me too. And you would only walk around the house in formation. Well, I'm pretty empathetic and like I have a thing where I'll bend to who I'm with, like I'll take on other people's accents sometimes by accident. So I like to think that I started to act more like the parakeet than, you know, than it was acting like me, I hope. I don't know, but we'll see. Like it would only say one or two words and I would say those words to it all the time and it would <gasps> say the words back, you know, so maybe it was teaching me. Oh, I was, it was, maybe. It was, wasn't there not another story about a, a parrot? Also, oh, yeah. there's another a hireling that humans have contracted. What was the story? Okay, we have to organize our menagerie of stories. <laughs> yeah, there was a parrot who in South America, I think in Brazil, who was a snitch. And he got arrested because it was trained to cry out when the cops came. Oh, so the cops came and like tried to bust a drug deal or something. I don't think it was anything that was, I think it was a drug deal. And the parrot was just like, the cops are here, the cops are here. And they arrested the parrot. I hope he was saying something else. He was saying something. And, oh, they did? Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. And then they took the parrot into the police station. Did they handcuff? Did they no. foot cuff the parrot? Wouldn't it be great if they foot cuffed him, but then he was like, haha, I have wings and just like, too oh, tall. beautiful story. It was yeah, a dream. I know. I think that it, I don't know what ended up, how the parrot ended up. I should look it up. I'll report next episode. But, um, okay. Yeah. But th I think that's like the brother of the spy, you know, like the parrot and the whale just like go along with whatever the humans are doing and yeah. they get involved in some weird human business and they don't, they don't necessarily yeah. care about it or know what it is, but, but they become like a central player. Mm -hmm. The like moral implications of that are weird. Yes. And then the thing with this, I'm not sure what the difference is between these two things, but the thing with Nim, who was a chimpanzee at NYU, really weird, seven kind of sexy 70s documentary of these like, I like documentaries about 70s scientists. Mm. I don't like hippie 70s scientists. I don't like cult shows, mm. but I'll watch like a similar show about a group of scientists and maybe there'll be a culty guy who's like the lead scientist and has a bunch of, you know, followers that are like cult like followers. That's fine to me, but like cult shows are disturbing. <laughs> 
So that's <laughs> about me. Okay. That's about me. Just <laughs> thanks for sharing that. I'm just delving in a little bit, just to give you some context because it's really good. Yeah. So they were interested in teaching a chimpanzee how to sign because Poco, who's a gorilla, learned how to sign really well. And that was like really famous. And this was a, I think it was a linguist and an animal scientist, kind of a narcissistic dude, decided to get a chimp and then trained the chimp in sign language, but mostly just would give the chimp to research assistants and people that he had slept with, which was bizarre, and teach the chimp how to sign. And so the first person he gave it to was his ex-girlfriend, who was married to a hippie, a rich hippie poet in the Upper West Side. And she was like, yes, I will take this tiny baby chimp into my family of seven children in my Upper West Side house. And yes, I will raise it as my child (laughs) and it'll be awesome. Okay. Yeah. And so that's the first half of the documentary, which I found to be like really fascinating because she's just like, they do all this hippie shit. Like they go on, you know, they go on like canoe rides and roll around in upstate New York wearing cool sweaters and like there's no family oh the striped sweaters the the nice rainbow colored thin striped sweaters for some reason all I could imagine is just them in different in the strange like semi-nature turismo situations when they were taking selfies even though there were no selfie phone I mean no selfie phones no selfie cameras phones Yeah, no, but they took a lot of home movies. I imagine a lot of selfies. They did. They took lots of home movies and people had like braids and different children like took the chimp on. But the chimp thought of itself and you can see this in the documentary. The chimp thought of itself as a child or as a communal member of the family. Mm. And then the mother was really obsessed with how the chimp was extremely aware of social dynamics and hated her husband Mm. and tried since a very small child to extricate the husband from the family. So yeah, the documentary gets very disturbing as it goes along because then the chimp goes into lots of different contexts. And but it's, I mean, it is a lot of ascribing feelings and interpretations to yeah. this one chimp. And it seems like a very typical way in which people usually cast animals, you know, and they really right. project and kind of anthropomorphize right. them and then also project all these ideas onto them. So it's not really about the animal, it's really yeah. still about them. It's like they're one, and I think people do this with their dogs now, and I'm allergic to dogs, so maybe I would do this too if I wasn't, but you know. Yeah, there's a whole thing of like dog mama or my dog baby. They want the naturalness, the idea of the naturalness from the animal for themselves. It's like a piece that they think that they're missing and they need the animal to give that to them. Mm. And yeah, in a way, it was cool because this family, I don't know what it was really like. But you could see that there was some mutuality and awareness of the difference between the chimp and the family. And they were just down for whatever the chimp was just matching sweaters. (laughs) No, they were hippies. Like they were doing some hippies. They were such hippies that they were going to like include the full being of whatever this chimp was. And in some ways it looks successful. And that's what I thought was really interesting. I was like, damn, that's hippie right there. They're like, well, I suppose they meant well. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I'm so sorry to report, but my champagne, the champagne that I'm drinking is actually inside this 1970s cup that has a chimp in a striped shirt. No, it doesn't. And sailor's bonnet and a duck in a plaid cap. And also a bunny in sportswear. It's, it's a French cup from the 70s of the vintage. And I'm this is nice. I need to see that. Mm-hmm. 
accidentally i will post it i will post it on social media did so you know did see. you plan that ahead of time for the for no the i did not know that was an accident no mm. it just seemed like you know it's clear it's glass but it has these drawings in it so i just thought you know champagne mm. and i should have a clear mug so i grabbed it I have, mm. i'm drinking champagne by the way mm. which we mm-hmm. may have mentioned previously. yes but. you should say that every five minutes <laughs> <laughs> just drive the alcohol for it. <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, that also brings me to this idea of, you know, which happens, it's kind of a social media phenomenon where people have animals and they start, you know, these accounts, Instagram accounts for the animals. Mm-hmm. And they refer to them as children. Mm-hmm. And the people refer to themselves as parents, the dog parents. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes the animals really take off into the social success and become breadwinners. Yes, I for like their that. parents. And so it's interesting they write the captions from the point of view of the animal often. Um, so that's kind of an interesting genre in general in writing and kind of <laughs> pseudo autobiographical um writing but then also the sort of tragic thing that happens when they do make money and then the animal dies and i feel like i kind of peripherally was aware i'm aware of some stories that you know of that nature i think i probably read a story too but i'm not really sure what happens and i think in my mind i think what happened if I wonder, do people just continue posting photos, you know, old mm-hmm. photos? So is it a sort of post-human pet life? Yeah. Or do they seize and close it? Like, that's interesting. What's, I think what if, happens to the pet in I think Instagram? it depends on how it becomes a pet. memorial. Yeah. Yeah. If they're still But it can't advertise it. after that point. If it's a dead bunny, it can't advertise <laughs> bunny food, I would imagine. No. That would be horrific. Well, I mean... Ghost. That, I th- Much ghost. like Susan Sontag. Ghost bunny Susan Sontag. Nah, what does it say? It's like the yeah. If you're not attached to the animal and you're using it for money, then it's plenty easy to just keep you know posting about it. But usually, people are pretty attached to these animals. I don't know. Mm. It's a little bit like being a stage mom. Oh, and this is what I was gonna mm. say is that animals have shorter lifespans than humans often, unless you're like a tortoise or a gorilla. Yeah. And that's interesting. And maybe that could be a part of the reason that we are condescending to them because we live three, four, five times longer than them. So we're like, your lifespan is like, you know, <laughs> one sixteenth of mine. But what about the ones that live longer? There are well, some, right? The tortoise? Yeah, we're, the, yeah we're intimidated by years? them. We find them intimidating. We are like embarrassed by them. Yes. Still make a soup. I think people still make a turtle soup. Well, those turtles don't live very long. That's why they're in the soups. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was horrified by turtle soup as a child. That was a big one. I was very upset. Isn't it a Louisiana thing? I think you're, and you're from, were you born? You're Cajun. Yeah. I am a Cajun person to some extent, but like, is it a French thing? I know that it was in Alice in Wonderland, yeah. the mock turtle. They make all the jokes about turtle soup to the mock turtle, which I found deeply insensitive i was super pissed about that when i was a little girl i remember Mm. like slamming the book shut because they were gonna they were telling the mock turtle about eating soup of it of itself and i did not like that yeah my family has great respect for turtles in general and that might be because they live a really long time i don't know they also are not giving towards humans very much like they don't like yeah well humans already took everything so you know right no surprise 
Yeah, they're, why should they? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> But the human centric gaze, it's really persists. It's interesting because um, there have been all these flurry of articles lately about how species where, you know, essentially there's so many species becoming extinct and it's bad for humans. So I thought it was Mm. so shocking and horrific that we were discussing extinction, but it was just not because of the animals. We weren't mourning the animals, but we were just mourning about what it would do for human ecosystem. Mm. And But it actually reminded me, I met a well-known ecological writer, scholar, who will remain unnamed. Mm. But I listened to a lecture and then talked to him afterwards. And I asked him that, you know, are you talking about it from the perspective kind of, you know, the perspective of the animals and the other species, or are you concerned about it because of how it will affect the human life? And he said, actually, that it, it was because he was concerned about the future of human life, mm. you know, mm. first and foremost. So it's interesting how that... Wow. Yeah. I, mean, I Not everyone's like that, obviously, but... The eco-feminist perspective is, you know, I don't think it's human-centric at all. It's like our work is to, you know bring cohesion and protect the ecosystem, you know, for all of nature and in service to all of nature. And yeah, like our responsibility is, is totally different. It's not hierarchical in that way. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me though. That is how humans like to be. And that's always like frustrated me to some extent that that's so easy for some people. But I think I've been thinking this week of how much I do that without noticing it, you know? needing or using animals like i said before like their sentience or their like self-awareness or self-expression to give myself joy Mm. yeah it's like extractive and and like how much you know how different how that's superhuman centric to do that even though i'm in some way celebrating their you know cuteness or whatever i'm still Mm -hmm. it's still about me yeah it's also interesting when people break up with someone, you know, they go through a breakup. Somebody mm-hmm. suggests, oh, you should get a dog. Yeah. Get a dog for a boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Probably would be a more loyal boyfriend. I wish they would say, this is my boyfriend. My ex said that he prefers animals to people. He was really? very vocal about it always. Yes. Oh, what was his justification for that? I think that they, they were just so unconniving and, you know, they were just, he really believed yeah. in their kind of authenticity and he was really charmed by them, I think, somehow. I think he yeah. saw himself as a kind of an animal. He wished he was one, maybe. Yeah. 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 And maybe he is. He is. Well, we are. We are, right? Are we not animals? We're animals. Yeah. I'd I've love to be more in touch with my animal self. Whatever that is. Well, I've been doing this somatic therapy. Oh, I've been doing this somatic therapy stuff because I'm, you know, a really brainy person and I'm very like in my head person, Mm -hmm. especially recently. And yeah, I have this pain in my neck that I haven't really had before. I've never had like consistent neck pain or back pain or anything. Because your brain is too much exercise and your brain's too muscular. And so it's pulling down your neck. Yeah. Also, the phone, the phone is pulling down your neck. Mm. Yes. But I was told by a very wise man that like, possibly I was leaning into the future of my like graduating grad (gasps) school. And like, so I was leaning forward and my head is very heavy and my neck couldn't support this forward propelling into the future. And like using your phone in a way is like not (laughs) extremely charming. I love him. And he was like, well, so like, let's practice backing up a little bit. Let's practice like 
sitting up straight and feeling what not tilting posture, the head tilting the head back what about going into the past if you tilt your head back will you yeah. go into the past well what's <laughs> so interesting time traveling yeah. mechanism your it, neck. you know what it really is because i practiced it all last week mm-hmm. i would just put my head back when my neck hurt or like i felt in any way discomfort of any kind even internal discomfort like i felt like nervous or something i would just like put my head back mm-hmm. and, and do this alignment thing that he taught me and it wasn't like do good posture like that machine you know the robot that you put on your back that you see on the internet that like buzzes when you have bad posture it's not like that where it's like have you seen that yeah I, i've seen that no i haven't yeah <laughs> but you i would haven't? Like, just like the idea of the singular robot that's on the I internet buzzes. yeah with that it like forces you from the outside <laughs> if only the internet was so unanimous jenny <laughs> there <laughs> is the one robot that works on your posture i'm sure lots of the listeners are like have one It buzzes. It like zaps you when you have bad posture and you put it in between your two backbones, like your scapulas. And then if you have bad, po- there's lots of like commercials for it. And if you put, yeah, if you like slouch, it'll buzz you. So then you like arbitrarily because you're afraid of the robot on your back, sit up straight. And I've heard people say that it's really nice. I would never do that. I saw uh, that and I was like, I have terrible posture and I'm going to keep having terrible posture because I'm never doing that. Oh, and I, I may have some sort of device like that. You're supposed to know. Actually, uh, it's a sort of, you clip it to you and then something happens. But I think it's, it's, um, what happens? I think it makes mistakes. I'm not sure. I was, I never <laughs> tried it actually because it was too, I don't know. I had to sync it with my phone oh, and then it just got oh, bored. And so I never did it. <laughs> I have a realization. Okay. I have a, I love the idea with buzzing at like strange moments. So, you know, when you're sort of like, I'm never sitting up anyway. I only lay down. Very good. Well, I, that's also my solution. But um, my mother told me that she got this thing. And so we used to have birds when I was growing up and we always had parrots and they, it was pretty pleasant. They would, you know, think we were their flock, which was sad that we made them have psychosis, but whatever. And then, but then we always had them on our shoulders. And if we went out of the door, they would fly away. And this happened a lot. So we were always really afraid that our, you know, wonderful trained pet would fly away. And my mom was the main trainer of the pet. And so we always just got very nervous about open doors to the outside and we would check our shoulders all the time. But she said that when she was using her posture device, it was buzzing in this certain way that subconsciously she, it gave her the feeling that she had a bird on her shoulder. Oh, so. Yeah. So two or three times she was a watchful bird. She was, yeah, it's like the pressure that you're really used to when you have a pet bird all the time. So it was like every time she went towards the door and she slouched because like something about opening the door made her slouch. It gave her the feeling that she had a parrot that was about to get away and it would make her flip out. And oh. she'd be like, oh, where's the parrot? That's nice. Yeah. It was like a, it's a I know. It was like a somatic robot parrot situation. It was very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So what I was saying about the somatic stuff is that the more you consider yourself as a body and that you're expressing your, not just through your posture, but the way you're expressing tension in your body and your stomach and your shoulders and your face, it's like the more you become aware of where that tension is and how your, you know, different emotions are expressed physically The more you're kind of inhabiting yourself as an animal and as a physical human and less Mm. as an idea of yourself, you know, and that's a good way to bridge, you know, the human and the the idealized like human conceptual self, like this enlightenment era idea of what humanity is and like a lived experience of embodied humanness, which I think we've lost a little bit. And I don't know, I've been practicing it a little more recently and 
it's amazing. It really is. I want to get a lot better at it and not just like, you know, leaning back or whatever, but like I've been, you know, learning about how to sense the floor better with my toes as I walk and like, Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's pretty trippy, but pretty cool. Oh, if only we were just like these cats and so many other animals that look like they're wearing socks. You know, it's an article. It's a shocking article. I I saved from the popular site. <laughs> what is this? You must you must why, read. <laughs> why do so many other animals and cats and why do uh, cats look like they're wearing socks? And it's you I know, like Rappy Cat, Little Bob, Maru. Uh, what do all these internet famous cats have in common? From ankle down, their paws are as white <laughs> as the trendy marble countertops vying for touching the same in the very same <laughs> why is that article so mad at them <laughs> oh my god oh my god the paws I think we're gonna stop at the paws competing with the marble countertops but I think that really exemplifies how they rendered you know into complete into sculptures mm-hmm. essentially because you know marble countertops yeah. and a cat image are but one you know I'm right. shocked by that. Right. Yeah. And and also of course that's the only I guess I would imagine. Yeah, I think I think that's the only animal that we really can only think of a few animals that would li- share the space with us, live with us, which is, you know, cat. So I'm really keep thinking crocodile, mm-hmm. crocodile, but you really cause I can you can really easily imagine crocodile on top of marble. <sighs> yeah. Really, mm-hmm. I guess sharing a space Did with you- a crocodile might not be what one would really want because Hungry. Did you know that my grandfather owned two crocodiles? No. It sounds like a lie, but it's not. Well, I'm sure they didn't think that he owned them. I'm sure they were not of the opinion that they were his possession. Right? Well, they were babies and he wasn't a very eccentric person, but there's this photo of him in the newspaper. He purchased, he was an accountant living in the French Quarter in an apartment, like in a city in New Orleans, you know, in New Orleans. And he was like 25. And he purchased two alligators and they lived in his, oh, his bathtub <laughs> for a while. <laughs> cute and mean at the same yeah. time. I'm sure that, and then they, probably the grad I mentioned. I know. Yeah. I think in the fifties, everyone thought it was really great to get weird animals, you know, and like put them. My mom said that it was really common in the fifties to buy tiny chickens, to buy chicks oh yeah that were dyed different like I've seen colors photos of that yeah yeah terrible but there was something i read that i uh, was talking about expanding that circle of you know the moral circle to include animals and animal rights more and they said one of the possible tools to do that is through you know anthropomorphic description or likening animals to humans but they said you know where's that might work with the dog mm. it might not work with chickens and i wondered why Interesting. I guess there's really a oh. idea of chicken as a not, um, yeah. not an intelligent animal. It does come back to this idea of the thought and yes. the mind and sentience, isn't it? Yes. Well, yeah. Well, it's that Werner Herzog quote about chickens that I can't remember, but you should pull up mm. because it's amazing. I mean, it's like one of the ones that he's famous for saying, but it's like they're totally, you could, I don't know, you could see chaos in their eyes or you can see just like they're completely dead 
in their eyes Mm -hmm. probably because they're like partially reptile or something but yeah i'll read it yeah the deadness yeah um, magically with the internet yeah i think i will find it look into the eyes of a chicken and you will see real stupidity it is a kind of bottomless stupidity of fiendish stupidity they're the most horrifying cannibalistic and nightmarish creatures in the world that is quite a statement <laughs> and very <laughs> arbitrary and what a I mean full disclo- grandfather disclosure my grandfather also hated chickens he wouldn't eat chicken legs because they thought they really? would be drumsticks he would not eat but that <laughs> I guess it has nothing to do with chicken oh. rights, but he was so thoroughly disgusted that he would not even have their legs. Well, I think that it's like Werner Hartog is just sad that chickens won't pay him any mind. Mm. You know, he's just feeling yeah. rejected by chickens. I, suppose, I think a chicken really mistreated him at some point. Right. That's how you make yourself feel better by villainizing the other person. Like, right. What? Yeah. That's so true. The other <laughs> chicken. Right. You're That's opposing chicken. <laughs> Villain. Villainous chicken. <laughs> Hmm. All right, I have a quote because it has to do with eyes. This is from The Soul of the Elephant, and it's about Martin Buber and a horse. What should we give it? It might be a little esoteric here, but whatever. Okay. The philosopher and theologian, well, that's enough. Martin Buber called this the immense otherness of the other, reflecting on his relationship with a family horse as a child. As he stroked the mane, it was as though the element of vitality itself bordered on my skin. Hmm. Something that was not I, he notes, but was elementally in relation to him. There was an existential connection between them in their improbable blessing of breathing, feeding life. Sounds sort of sassy to me. And not only life, but the particularity of sentient individuals as the horse very gently raised his massive head, ears flicking then snorted quietly as a conspirator gives a signal meant to be recognizable only by his fellow conspirator. Mm. And I was approved. <laughs> and I was approved. No, assumptions. Oh, assumptions. Yeah. Again, assumptions. Martin Buba, a philosopher. He feels like the opposite of mm. Werner Herzog, who is not a philosopher. You know, he felt approved and uh, Herzog felt rejected i mean i guess i suppose he thought the approval as well but i feel like of course my position is we must find right. new ways of relating or perhaps we need to condense take up less space and give animals more space yeah identity politics for animals is what we need to work on yeah i'm into it agreed yes yes anything else we need to <laughs> discuss <laughs> on cuteness and animal i wish this is just an aside not really a, a big point but i'd like to watch a uh, pikachu detective movie that's just something on my wish list oh, it's wow. a fantastical animal yes this has just recently came out and, is that a thing yeah you know i'm curious about oh. it because um yeah interesting what does pikachu detect i do not know but I think it's just the genre of the animal detective or, yeah, the animal sleuth. The animal worker. The animal worker. And I think just that, I mean, there's kind of a long lineage of these stories of taking an animal, again, anthropomorphizing. And I guess Mouse comes to mind, mm-hmm. you know, the comic book where a, sto- a Holocaust story is told, mm-hmm. but through sort of in the animal kingdom, like in the mouse kingdom. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think I'm 
often charmed by these stories. So I'm interested in Pikachu in particular, I find very charming. So I look forward to watching the Pikachu detective and giving a review. It's interesting that all those cartoons and stories are about mice. Oh my gosh, that is interesting. Pikachu is a little bit mice-like. And then there was another, well, interesting that the Jews sometimes equated with mice because there's this other story, right? Mm -hmm. Was that also a mouse, like going from the... Yeah, American Tale, that was mice. Right, right, Mm -hmm. yeah. (laughs) Well, from Martin Buber to my people hmm interesting yeah i'm not really sure i mean i guess vermin because historically we were often referred to as vermin so maybe that's why yeah or we like to make stories about animals that are smaller than us because it makes us feel more in control of the story that's true you know and like they're yeah they're underdogs you know so to speak (laughs) i think yes and also they have a way i feel like there's something very cute about the way that mice you know i thought about as these kind of small home you know they make these homes in crevices yeah you know and there's just something very charming about the idea of this like under the floor there's a mysterious kingdom you know this mm-hmm. room with a little table right. and a little mouse family like mousing about right yeah it's a lot less weird than like the borrowers wasn't it the borrowers who were the just tiny people who lived in your house and i didn't think that was weird but i do think it's weird to think about mice families that's strange why was it okay that there were tiny mouse-like humans who lived in matchbooks and that was great but yeah i don't know i want to say something though um just slightly political because i've been thinking about it in lots of other contexts it's like like, I mean, of course, we all know this, but like in the NIM documentary, they eventually uh, stopped experimenting on, I mean, he ended up, well, I won't give it all, well, I will. He ended up going into a facility for medical experiments and there was a huge outcry because he could speak sign. And that was a terrible thing to put a chimp who learned to speak to humans into experimentation. Mm. So they wanted to protect him and take him out of this torture and not the other animals which Mm. i think is really interesting that like this in the in the like Mm -hmm. in the mid 80s this like differentiation between the language having animal and the non-language having animals you know it's like a big deal like discernible language having you know the human language right yeah right but then what ended up happening was the school i think it was nyu stopped all of their animal testing in general because there was public outcry about animal testing because animal subjectivity was becoming more of a part of human consciousness partially because of experiments with you know animals like him and like coco who were able to learn language and you know because we were able to anthropomorphize so then we were able to see the value of that animal as a being then justified people to stop animal testing because people were fighting against it politically, you know. So as a vegetarian, I will make a stand at this moment that like the more people have realized this, the more, you know, pushing they have done to restrict animal cruelty and restrict, you know, stuff like factory farming Mm. and push things to actually make a difference. But the only way that's ever happened is that people push against things happening, you know? So I just wanted to put that out there. I can't not say it because things have changed in the last 50 years in terms of animals, you know, and the way they're treated. And I think that they'll end up changing more. I hope that they will. Mm. I'm not sure, actually, but I hope that they will. Let's hope. Yeah. I think people are better at buying things, you know, making choices about what they buy. Mm. Yeah, I have. I think I suspect skeptical about that. I'm so skeptical about the activism yeah. of the, the activists of the consumer. That's, I don't think that's right. really... I think that's just really operates on the kind of feel better 
spectrum, but not really on yeah. any tangible difference. But I think in terms of policy, they do seem to be some some steps in that direction. And I, I suppose with uh, the, right. the activism surrounding climate change, I feel like yeah. there's there could be something as a result of that. Yeah, for a lot of reasons. Yeah, for the record that I don't think we can buy our way to any sort of goodness. Just not possible. Right. Oh, well, we could not buy our way. Yeah, I think that's possible. Like yeah, I think if we just avoid buying, <laughs> I think per- just not purchasing things might help more yeah. than purchasing mindfully. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm trying to do. By limiting the monetary inflow, right. we can reduce our purchasing abilities. <laughs> That's <laughs> true, but we're advocating yeah. on this uncentered subject. Yeah, not sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure either, but... Where's Martin Buber yeah. when you need him with his eloquence and his fine beard? I don't know. I wouldn't mind staring into the eye of a horse and feeling accepted. I wouldn't mind having that experience. I mean, with the right horse. Yeah. Horse, horse. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess everyone... They are, they are pretty nice. They are, yeah. It's also interesting how... Back to the fantastical animal, how these dragons have reinserted themselves into the public consciousness of Game of Thrones. That's a good good point. (laughs) Right. Yeah. But also weaponized, weaponized animals. I know. It's weird that they never have the dragons. They never just like play with the dragons. It's like the dragon is only there to fly, to soar gracefully. Mm-hmm. through space in like a grandiose way or in another grandiose way like you know some sort of military movie just like rain down fire mm-hmm. and they're never kind of given a moment like more than a moment sometimes they'll just be like oh i'm a cute dragon yeah but it won't really like it doesn't have its own story really you know it's no, just like no we never enter that story we never sort of just follow them for the sake of them and not in conjunction with the human actors with the human yeah. characters it's true yeah, they're only as, yeah, vehicles, I mean, at least, as vehicles or as weapons. Yeah. 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 Or, or like bargaining ships or like, yeah, part of the battle or they're part of the arsenal. Mm-hmm. I want 30 minutes of just what's up with the dragons <laughs> and, no, and no talking, no human talking, I agree, just dragons. Yeah. I, I, I join Come on. Yeah. If we love this show, we got to prove it. And that's the way we're going to prove that. Sure. <laughs> sure. Just dragons. Just um, hey, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Do you think that unicorns were ever real? Um, I think something of that nature. I think that, well, I think they are real. I think, you know, there's an animal, the name of which I have forgotten because I drank a bit of champagne. But it has that what, rhinoceros. The that's right, rhinoceros. Sorry to scream. <laughs> but the rhinoceros, I think, could easily have been, you know, maybe an emaciated rhinoceros that, you know, rolled around yeah. in like the blue mud. And, you know, people were. I, I yeah. like to think. And they found it. Yeah. But also, you know, who knows? Perhaps because recently I discovered that dinosaurs, in fact, many dinosaurs were feathered, returning to return right. to the feather, but apparently. Most of them had feathers and I was really utterly shocked because I think I as many of us just imagined that them to be scaly. And then suddenly like it was really a terrifying idea of, because somehow I think because the bird, we think of mostly birds being small and uh, somewhat cute. Mm-hmm. And then they were just so, so enormous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm shocked. I know. And, but I would have loved to see the plumage. I feel like the colors were really exciting. Yeah. And huge. Imagine how big. One feather. Yeah. Yeah. 
enormous. Yeah. You could probably imagine just how build a house yeah. with feathers, it, feathers alone. Yeah. How many dinosaur feathers can you put on a Kardashian and still not be camp? <laughs> well, or you could just fly if you were a witch. You could just fly a single feather instead of, you know, Ooh. a broom. Hell yeah. Just That's go amazing. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Well, it's hard. I mean, that's like another layer of the not quite understanding animal subjectivity is finding their bones and then using our weird imaginations to recreate their very mm. beings for our own purposes. Yeah. You know, it's kind of a charming thing that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it's important to me that there is proof that there were many lions on European soil, but they were hunted into extinction. Ooh. Yeah. So... That means that there's all sorts of stuff. Like there's a possibility that a lot of things existed, you know, across the Pangea Mm. that we're not quite sure about what it is and what it looked like. I think that's pretty fun. Yeah. I mean, I'm just not sure about anything. I mean, animals is just one portion of my uncertainty. I don't know anything (laughs) about it. It's just one corner of this like giant canvas uncertainty that I am that I've come to center one sock <laughs> yeah just yeah one I, socked corner indeed. on the marble yeah I would like to know Sorry. I think more about just different animals sexuality I've somehow never taken the time to find out but I would like to learn more like um, hamsters yeah how do they yeah. procreate I think I have a- I think the idea of hamsters having sex is really funny <laughs> so sorry to be condescending yeah. But, you know, just small sex. (laughs) They're small sex. (laughs) They do it a lot because they have have to have lots of babies. And they're like little plump furry bodies that were pretty rectangular. (laughs) Like two furry (laughs) rectangles going at it. Yeah. I wish I wish you could interview them. I have I would like to old I'm interested in the mutuality. People always talk about animal sex as not being pleasurable often. Oh yes, I heard about that. that They're sort of a prickly penises. Peni penises. (laughs) Yeah. I don't like that. There's something something weirdly patriarchal in that kind of talk. I'm not sure why. Like you're lucky to get what you get because you know, what if you were a cat? Be with worse i'm like uh i don't know if that's how animals work <laughs> whoa <laughs> i hope no one actually know, said that to you. it's terrifying <laughs> they, well it was like intimated this was happening late at night and this is like me and an ex-boyfriend as we were watching raccoons like fuck each other and this is the conversation oh, and i was good. like I saying the same thing that was just the during intercourse um, no. <laughs> yeah <laughs> brief break you're lucky <laughs> you're lucky i'm not a cat <laughs> How this oh one guy God. got off. <laughs> no, it was worse. I was saying this, watching oh. raccoons fuck. And we were sitting there and it was pretty awesome. We were like, oh, look at these raccoons. And then the girl raccoon didn't have any ears. And I was like, why doesn't she have Whoa. any ears? And then the male raccoon, who was a huge brutish fellow. He had four ears. No, Sorry. he went and he he went to bite her non-existent ears really hard. Like during the act. And I was like, oh, that's why she doesn't have ears. Because somebody else ate them? Yeah, that's kind of what was insinuated. Oh my goodness. That is really frightening. And one, yeah, okay. Yeah, at least we don't. Well, some people, I guess. Yeah. The rest of the evening wasn't as saucy, I'll say. Like we were all like, "Mm." and then that happened and it was like, okay, let's go to sleep now. Yeah, that sounds a little bit yeah. too special to follow. But who's to know? You know, I guess. 
healthy. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. that's true. Mm-hmm. But you need to, we need to interview them. I wish they would come and talk to us about Animals? what it's like for them. Yeah. 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 We should have prepared better. We should have put out a call, an interviewing call. I know yeah. because it's really uh, like, what are we doing here? We're just talking about other species. We're like gossiping, gossiping behind, about other species. Behind their back. Behind their very back. <laughs> in scaly backs <laughs> i feel like one of them would have showed up and like you know set us straight like one of them would have been yeah, like the raccoon right, like would have you know? bitten our ears off no you're lucky you're not invited your ears sorry no oh i hate that raccoon <laughs> no like <laughs> like horse, a single horse, alligator horse would come maybe and like hell yeah communicate they would. his eyes <laughs> his ass that's what we can <laughs> we can hope <laughs> oh lord uh, is this one of those podcasts where people just get drunk or you, i think so yeah but where you just get drunk and i sit here and i don't drink no, 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 next time okay that's next cool. time you get drunk and then i'll just sit here and <laughs> not say anything all right just totally fine be silent we have a witness and we have an explorer there you go so you can do whatever you're doing and i'll just witness it's cool that's not a bad scenario i think not a bad scenario well i think we've done some beasts too. i think we've covered a great deal of material and yeah we just yeah, yeah we delve into the animal oh i do have to mention that I tried to interview people about bestiality. Like I tried to ask different people I knew and who why? had curiosity why about. Did you do that? Because obviously that's part of this scenario. Oh. You know, like, do you have any fun stories? Not necessarily about like you person fucking an animal. Oh, but you were preparing for the podcast and so you were trying to do research? Yeah. Oh, I was serving my so my friends about their opinions. Okay. I'm social. My their opinions about bestiality, but everybody just showed up with a bunch of, you know, fetishes about fucking it. I was just like, okay, I'm sure that exists. That's fine, but that's not really the point. Cause then it's, you know, not it's about consent and and it's disturbing. You know, it just quickly went into something really messed up. So I have mm-hmm. to mention animal consent is important and you can't talk about this without talking about fucking animals, but mm-hmm. I don't know. If anybody has anything actually existentially interesting or maybe, you know, about lovingly engaging in such thing, I'm not sure if that exists. Is there such a thing about animal consent? I don't know. Let's, yeah. I don't know. I doubt it too. I mean, if you can't even stories circulating about you know interest people relations well, like human animal, but uh, I don't believe it. It just seems from the parts of animal, and yeah, there's also a if play about can, it. Is oh really? What is it? Wasn't Edward about Al- the goat? Play about the goat? I'm not yeah. entirely. But there's that one. sounds familiar. No, not that we don't know about it, so let's just leave it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Someone else tell us. Yeah. And sort of like if we can't even, if the human gay, if there's such a thing of human gaze on animals and how it's super problematic, then extending that problematic gaze also insinuates other, you know, stealing animal bodies for sex. (laughs) Right. That's the thing that happens. And so that was center subject, trying to aim our cursor at another unknown topic to us unknown to us some of you may know more about it and we welcome your comments and we'll see you next week discovering yet another unknown Mm. bye goodbye goodbye